Um, before we get started, let's go to the Lord in, in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are, are so grateful for all your blessings. And last week, we, we were, our eyes were open to the magnificence and the beauty of who you are. Three in one, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and a concept that we will never fully grasp. And we will spend our eternity praising you for. And we thank you that you've opened our eyes just even a little bit this side of heaven. Um, and given us that fellowship with other believers, fellowship with each other, fellowship just in Christ and in Christ alone. Our hearts just kind of burn within us in gratitude for all that you accomplished. We pray that you would continue to work in the lives and hearts of all those who attended, including our own. But if there was any unbelievers with us, Father, we pray that you would continue to, to draw them to yourself to bring them to repentance and a faith and a knowledge of who you are. Father, I pray even for our time together this morning as we look at at the atonement and all that it did on our behalf and as we kind of delve into this rich part of theology that is so vast to understand. Lord, I pray that my words would not be confusing, that uh, I would speak with clarity, um, but the authority of your word as well. Father, we just thank you for this wonderful time we have together to study, to learn, and to grow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, So I have, if you have not been with us, well, it's been a couple weeks since we've actually been in a normal Sunday school class. We've had Q&As, we've had uh, a time of prayer a couple weeks ago. Um, and uh, so we're kind of getting back into our regular routine, and then it's going to kind of take another hiatus next week. Um, but I'll, um, right, we're going through The Cross and Salvation, which is one of our BTI books, if you're in BTI. Um, and uh, I'm charged with doing chapter four, the, the chapter on the doctrine of the atonement. Um, I say we're going to take a bit of a hiatus because starting next week, I believe it is, uh, we're going to have Pastor Steve in here, and he's going to be going through the Grace Connect class with everyone, kind of reminding us of where our church is, why we believe what we believe, and and why we do what we do. And I think um, if you have people that do not normally come to Sunday school class that you know, this is one of the most valuable times um, I think one of the most enjoyable, enriching things that they can go through, it will just explain everything about this church, uh, what we believe, why we believe it, um, and uh, I, I'm excited for it. So make sure you're here next week. Um, the Doctrine of the Atonement. I'm going to read something here about uh, in 2010. The Doctrine of the Atonement kind of got a little bit of a headline uh, in the secular media. Um, I'm sure most of you have heard of Glenn Beck, right? Glenn Beck, on July 13th of 2010, on his broadcast, uh, spent a good portion of his show explaining the difference between the Christian view of individual salvation and the collective view of salvation proffered by proponents of black liberation theology. And this is what Glenn Beck said. You cannot earn your way into heaven. You can't. 
There's no deed, no random act of kindness, no amount of money to spend around to others that earns you a trip to heaven. It can't happen. It's earned by God's grace alone by believing that Jesus died on the cross for you. This is what Christians believe. (laughs) And this man is a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which uh, uh, he's a Mormon. Um, This one article I found said, Beck spoke of a necessary change of heart and then proceeded to quote James 2, verse 20, a verse, I often hear Mormons who feel this somehow trumps the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. However, Beck explained this passage in a very typical Protestant fashion. Beck said, what does this mean? Our works are a demonstration of our faith. He went on to say, I am also our I also am wise enough to know that people will say, yeah, but Glenn Beck is a Mormon. He's not even a real Christian. You can't believe what you want, or you can believe what you want. I will tell you that I am a man who needed the atonement more than most people do. I appreciate the atonement. I accept Jesus as my Savior. I know that I am alive today because I did give all of it to him because I couldn't carry it anymore. This is a man who has a big platform, obviously. Um, and when he made these statements, I heard it first on Todd Friel's program, Wretched Radio. And uh, Todd Friel made a very quick attempt um, to, first of all, going, if Glenn Beck truly believes what he says, he's not a Mormon. I go, this flies in the, in, in the face of Mormon doctrine. Um, and I know Glenn Beck, uh, or Todd Friel, reached out to Glenn Beck um, several times, and I don't know whatever came of that or anything. And uh, as far as I know, Glenn Beck still considers himself a Mormon. But it's interesting when we look at what he said, how does he understand the atonement? And so he, he's saying the word atonement several times. And he's talking about Jesus Christ. And I'm not here the one... Well, I can pretty much say Glenn Beck is not a Christian because he still follows the practice of, of, the, of the Mormon church. But uh, it is interesting what he said. And I think he actually had a better understanding of the atonement than a lot of Protestants do um, at that time. I think the Lord just, in his divine sovereignty, uses weird people sometimes <laughs> uh, to proclaim his truth. Um, our our chapter is called it's titled Christ died for sins once for all coming from 1 Peter chapter 3:18 and just some introductory concerns to this chapter it is a book we are going through a book that's a BTI book so I'm giving basically the cliff notes version and some of my own introspective thoughts on what he said on on what Bruce Damaris says. Um, We would say that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ are the focus of Christianity. However, there's many liberal theologians that direct attention to a select number of Christ's teachings, his compassionate deeds, rather than the vicarious suffering and death on the cross. They say Jesus' main thing was his teaching and his miracles and stuff like that. And, and we would say, no, the main reason he came was the cross. I don't think anyone here needs to be convinced that all mankind is made up of sinners. Um, and every individual stands guilty before a holy God. In fact, Steve Lawson painted that picture so beautifully last week for all of us. But this creates the fundamental issue of human existence. 
how is deeply ingrained sin forgiven? And how does the spiritual chasm between God and man get abridged? How is that fixed? Job, um, the first book of the Bible that was ever written, um, even poses the question, how can a mortal man be righteous before God? Job understood this. How can I, as a sinner, be right before God, before a holy, righteous God? To answer the question, we have to understand the significance of Christ's suffering and his death on the cross. Could God have atoned for sin in any other way than through the death of his son? In other words, we have to ask the question, was the cross totally necessary? The issue addressed today on Christ's cross can be numerous, and it is a complex issue. But we can, um, we can kind of sympathize Emil Brunner's confident assertion um, when he said, He who understands the cross aright understands the Bible, and he understands Jesus Christ. So we need to understand the cross to understand everything else. Um, we're given... Uh, just, I'm going to do a really brief, quick run through all the different historical interpretations of the atonement. There are, let me see, there's six of them. There's the classic ransom theory. This was held by a lot of the early church fathers. Um, this theory depicted God triumphing over enslaved spiritual forces and it was the dominant um, church view for the first millennia. It focuses not on Christ bearing sin, uh, or the penalty of sin, or propitiating God's wrath, but on his act of delivering believers from enslaving powers. Now, you can understand why that would be popular to the early church fa- fathers, because why? They were enslaved, and they were looking for a freedom from, from an oppressive uh, society and world around them. Um, so they held that it was not Christ-bearing sin's penalty, um, but upon his act of delivering believers from enslaving powers. Some who hold this view viewed Christ's death as a ransom paid to the devil. As a result of sin, mankind was under sin's dominion, and at the cross, God delivered Christ over to Satan in exchange for the souls he held captive. But Satan could not hold Christ permanently, and so Jesus rose from the dead. What's the problem with this view? Who's got the power? Satan does. God's in, God is enslaved to Satan. And, and so there's a, a, a problem with this view. Others claim that God did battle with Satan, triumphed over him, and rescued him from the captive of the devil. But again, that enslaves God to Satan's ways. Um, so that's the classic ransom theory. Um, the next one that kind of came through was from Anselm. It's called the satisfaction or judicial theory, most popular in the Middle Ages. It was influenced by the concept of a feudal overlord whose dignity was injured by his citizens. Um, says that Christ's death chiefly satisfied God's wounded honor and focused less on the penal and substitutionary nature of his death. Um, this theory, yeah, it's that... We always honor the king, and, and the king's honor has been tainted. And so that's, that's the whole purpose of, of, um, of this theory. Anselm's theory appealed to Roman Catholic thought, um, 
with a, a theology of penance and merit and, and earning honor um, in, in eternity. So there we see another kind of thing. This becomes a work-based atonement. Uh, the third one, held by Abelard and many liberals, is called the exemplarism or the moral influence theory. This is a subjective view of the atonement which focuses on Christ as the great teacher and example and a change of attitude and the change of attitude his death affects in humans. Proponents claim that Jesus' death basically accomplished nothing objectively. Um, this theory really maintains that God's love displayed on the cross overwhelms sinners' resistance and persuades them to repent and be reconciled to God. Basically, God just gave a great example to us. Um, a couple years ago, probably about three or four years ago, there was a bit of a controversy. The Presbyterian Church USA, um, a very liberal denomination, um, wanted to use the song in Christ alone in their new hymnal that they were put, but they didn't want to have the phrase, till on the cross that Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. They wanted it to change to, till on the cross as Jesus di- died, the love of God was magnified. And therefore, that shows that it was just an influence. It didn't actually cover anything. It didn't actually fix any problem. It was just a simple example. So that one we throw out as well. Um, Fourthly, the governmental or rectoral theory held by many Arminians. Uh, Hugo Grotius, what a terrible last name, Grotius, who died in 1645. He was a student of Arminius Um, was the first clear proponent of this theory. He basically believed that objectively Christ, by his death, was a token, rather than a full or equivalent payment to God for human sins. In other words, through Jesus, God upheld moral governance of the universe while setting aside the requirement of the law that sinners got to be punished that they must be punished. God could have relaxed his law altogether and not punished Christ, but this would not have achieved the maximum deterrence against future sins. This is what they believed. Basically, God used Jesus as an example to communicate his hatred of sin and to motivate us to repentance. So Arminians like this because the extent of the atonement there can be seen as as universal. It's for everyone. Christ died for the purpose of providing salvation for absolutely everyone. And so we see kind of that that is not exactly what is the case. And it also just says, again, this has elements of that example thing. All it is is just to persuade us. The cross was just meant as a persuasion to repentance. Fifthly, another, uh, the fifth view is the universal reconciliation theory held by Karl Barth. Um, Karl Barth opposed liberalism's subjective view of the atonement and affirmed that Christ and his death objectively reconciled the world to God. Barth freely used this, the language of Christ as a substitute. However, this is where Barth goes wrong. His view diverges from an orthodoxy in the fact that he denied that by bearing the penalty of our sin, Christ propitiated the wrath that had offended God. Um, instead, he held that in his incarnation and death, Christ 
who is our representative, united humanity with his divine nature. Therefore, in solidarity with Christ at Calvary, humankind suffered and died. Therefore, we were basically on the cross, is, what, is how Barth kind of pushed that idea. Um, but Christ was our substitute, but we were on the cross. In, in, it's a weird way, I know. So I'm getting weird looks. I go, I kind of give them two. All right, it's bizarre. Um, the penal substitution theory, this is the sixth view, and this is the one which we would hold to, um, just to make it nice and clear. All right. According to this view, sin, which is primarily a violation of God's law, not his honor, uh, results in just penalty of the just penalty of death. Sin requires death. Um, but in love, Jesus Christ, as our substitute in his life, perfectly fulfilled the law and then in his death bore the just penalty for our sin. So his life fulfilled the law, his death bore the penalty. In other words, on the cross, Christ took our place and bore the equivalent punishment for our sin, thereby satisfying God's righteous demands of the law and appeasing God's wrath at the same time. As repentant sinners appreciate Christ's vicarious sacrifice by faith, therefore God forgives their sins, imputes Christ's righteousness on the sinner, and then reconciles that estranged sinner to himself. Cyril of Jerusalem, who was one of the early church fathers who died in 386 AD, said, We were enemies of God through sin. And God decreed the death of the sinner. One of two things, therefore, was necessary. Either that God in his truth should destroy all men, and that in his loving kindness he should remit the sentence. But see the wisdom of God. He preserved the truth of his sentence and the exercise of his loving kindness. Christ took our sins in his body upon the tree that we, having died to sin, by his death might live to justice. Um, this penal substitutionary view became fully developed really with the Protestant Reformation. Um, Luther and Calvin in particular really started to kind of lay the groundwork in, in kind of at least formalizing it in a way. I mean, the truth has always been there. As we can see, even uh, Cyril of Jerusalem, who was in 386, this is what he believed. Um, but they started to kind of put it pen to paper and, and kind of a little bit more formalize it so that it w there was clarity um, because of the lack of clarity throughout history up until this point. So what, what, how do we look at the doctrine of the atonement, especially this penal substitutionary theory? We have to understand the central importance of Christ's death. Um, and this is, this is kind of a, a section that the Damaris really, I hope all of you are in BTI and you're all getting this book because like I said, I'm giving you the Cliff Notes version. He goes, I am skimming over stuff that he is covering here. Um, he goes into wonderful depth and I was talking to a friend yesterday on the phone saying I was going over this, and he goes, oh, if I could only preach on the atonement every single Sunday, he goes, that would just make my, my life. 
And, and this is one of those doctrines that as believers, we have the greatest joy in discovering this because this is where everything hinges on this one doctrine. And so just an exposition of the doctrine of the atonement begins with the central importance of Christ's death. Christ's death is not a peripheral issue. It's not a secondary theme. It is the central, crucial doctrine of our faith. In fact, where do we get the word crucial from? From the word cross, the Latin word crux. So the cross is crucial. One writer said this, if the student has insufficient time to master the other important sections of Christian doctrine, let him at least have a firm grasp of this, which is the very heart and core of his faith. I love that. If you can only take one thing, get this doctrine right. In the New Testament, the cross is the place of atonement. The theological word atonement was first really used in 1526. It's, it's found in the Bible, but the actual like English word atonement was really kind of first used in 1526 in the sense it was used to describe reconciliation or the restoration of friendly relations between God and sinners. The early meaning of the term as the restoration um, between estranged parties kind of suggested a reconciliation. Gradually, it broadened to include the notions of reconciliation, propitiation, and expiation, um, and how those are all achieved. Christianity is about what? It is about Christ. I mean, it's named after Christ, if you really want to know. What is Christianity about? It's Christ. And the crucial fact about Christ is what? His passion, his death on the cross. Um, Christ's example, his teachings and miracles are important. But his atoning death is absolutely necessary. It's absolutely crucial. And I'm going to just keep using that word, crucial. Nail that home. After all, what does John say the inhabitants of heaven will be singing about for all of eternity? In Revelation 5, it says they're going to be singing the praises of what? The Lamb who was slain. So is this an important issue? <laughs> yes, because you're going to do it for all eternity. The way of atonement in the Old Testament. So how did, before Jesus died on the cross, how did God affect atonement in Old Testament times? Um, how was it? The blood of bulls and goats. There were sacrifices that need to be made. They need to be committed to God. Um, Adam and Eve were first the, saw the first sacrifice, and God did it for them. Um, and then apparently they taught Cain and Abel, because we see Cain and Abel doing what? Offering sacrifice to the Lord. We find the first explicit mention of an altar in the Bible, following the flood. When Noah sacrificed burnt offerings to the Lord for deliverance from the flood. Later, we see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all of these men making altars and sacrifice to the Lord. I mean, Abraham was even going to go sacrifice Isaac at one point. 
Um, and thankfully, the Lord was able to, to work miraculous things. And, and, uh, and after he had called him to do that, he tested his faith. He provided another way, which we also kind of see God's grace and loving kindness as substitutionary death. By, but the key to Israel's sacrificial system, even though those patriarchs offered sacrifice, what was the key to all of Israel's sacrificial system eventually? Anybody know? Okay. <laughs> it's the Passover. The Passover became the key. What did they model all their sacrifices after was it began with the Passover in Egypt when God commanded each Hebrew household to what? Sacrifice a lamb and then do what with it? Paint the blood on the doorposts. Yeah, and what did that do? That it kept death. It, 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 the, the angel of death passed over them. And what did it do? If you didn't have the blood over your doorpost, what, did it ha- what happened to your household? Your firstborn died and your livestock. Um, so we see that first shed blood depicted there, the Passover blood of the lamb, that sacrifice had strong atoning power and anticipated what? The blood of the lamb shed on Calvary that would revert or that would avert sin or the that would remove sin and avert the divine wrath that was supposed to come. How is this celebrated by the Jewish people? It's celebrated on the Day of Atonement or what they call Yom Kippur now. Um, this is still in, in a lot of Orthodox Jews um, day. It's the most important celebration in the Old Testament. Uh, where the high priest sacrificed a young bull as a sin offering and a ram for burnt offering to atone for himself, for the priesthood, for all the priests, and then for the whole nation. The Day of Atonement ritual dramatically depicted the holiness of God in all that it meant, the gravity of sin and God's gracious provision by providing this, this vicarious death through an animal. Old Testament, but... What were some of the limitations of the Old Testament sacrifice system? It didn't last. It didn't last. Sacrifices themselves um, were over and done with. Um, they couldn't clear the conscience of a, of, a, of a person. They still knew that they sinned. Sacrifices were offered day to day, year by year, because they were temporary. Sacrifices themselves were not able to fully atone for sin. Blood of bulls and goats couldn't clear the conscience of the overseers. The Old Testament sacrifices under the Old Testament were incapable of giving any provided eternal promise of inheritance. They couldn't do it. People in the Old Testament did not die and, and go to their, gain their internal inheritance. They had to wait for the ultimate sacrifice to be made. So the big idea that comes with so that was the way of atonement in the Old Testament, but it was an incomplete way. So now we need this bigger idea of atonement. We need a better sacrifice. We need this penal substitution that into, that the Messiah would come and die in the sinner's place and take upon himself the sinner's just punishment. 
Why do we know that this is going to happen? Because Isaiah, turn to Isaiah chapter 52. I mean, you're, you're probably all very familiar with this passage. Isaiah 52, beginning in 13. And you know, because this is where probably the greatest passage in all of Scripture that describes the atonement and that substitutionary death that Christ would die. Starting in Isaiah 52, verse 13, and I'm going to read through 53, verse 12. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the childhood of men, children of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told to them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground he had no former majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And catch this, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had, not, he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. You don't need a clearer doctrine of the atonement of what Christ did on the cross. This describes the Messiah's substitutionary sacrifice. Verse 5 indicates that the outcome of the Messiah's substitutionary sacrifice, that punishment that brought us peace was upon him. The divine judgment he bore provided us sinners peace with God and salvation. 
But this isn't just a new te- or an Old Testament concept. This also is found in the New Testament. The totality of Jesus' life as well as his death should be viewed as a sacrifice unto God. When Galatians 4.4 4 tells us that Jesus was born under the law, it meant that he was subject to all the Mosaic law, everything that it prescribed, all the Jewish law, that circumcision, the Passover, synagogue worship, everything. But in his complete obedience to the will of the Father and his perfect fulfillment of the law and its demands, Jesus did what? He fulfilled all righteousness, Matthew 14, or Matthew 3 tells us. He fulfilled all righteousness. So his life provided that same fulfillment of the law. Jesus viewed his own death as substitutionary. Luke 22 indicates that Jesus took bread, broke it, and said what? This is my body given for you. After he took the cup, he gave thanks, and then, he, and then what did he say? He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, the Greek preposition here that is used actually means on behalf of. We don't get that as well in our translation, but it's on behalf of or in place of. This is poured out on your behalf. Um, John the Baptist said of Jesus, what? He called him the, look, the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. I mean, we see that everyone knew why Jesus was there. He was to fulfill that role. Caiaphas even uttered prophetic truth to the Sanhedrin when he said, when he said in John eleven fifty, he says, you do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for, or as the preposition on behalf of, the people than the whole nation perish. Caiaphas viewed Jesus' death as a matter of political expediency, but John, in writing his gospel, interpreted this unwitting prophecy in terms of Jesus' vicarious, his substitutionary death on behalf of all Jews and Gentiles. The notion of substitutionary sacrifice widely is widely attested in Scripture, and it means that Christ died in the place of sinners. The perfect obedience God required from his creatures, Jesus fully gave. In bearing the penalty of human sin as our substitute, he made full payment to God for all our failures and all our misdeeds. If you take nothing away from anything else today, I'm going to repeat what I just said. That, that last little bit here. Because this kind of is the thesis of all what the atonement is. The notion of substitutionary sacrifice, widely attested in Scripture, means that Christ died in the place of sinners. The perfect obedience God required from his creatures, Jesus fully gave. In bearing the penalty of human sin as our substitute, he made full payment to God for our failures and misdeeds. If you take nothing else, take that away. Scripture presents... No explicit theory 
on the atonement on on the atonement, but it does utilize, or I should say, motifs or kind of examples. Um, but it does utilize several metaphors that give us a little bit for our finite minds to to kind of comprehend the significance of Christ's death. Um, one example is ransom. A ransom. Uh, what is a ransom? It's something that is paid. Um, to redeem or buy back a person from a variety of different negative circumstances. Um, Mark 10 says, The Son of Man did not come to, serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for man. Um, so ransom is one motif that is used. Another is redemption. The English word comes from the Latin word, which means to repurchase um, or to buy back. Um, Zechariah in Luke chapter 1 states that through Mary, um, Mary's child, the Lord has come and has redeemed his people. He has bought back his people. He has purchased them or repurchased them. Uh, another word is propitiation. I used to love that word as a kid because it just rolls off the tongue in such a fun way. Propitiation. I never understood what it meant. Um, it was just a fun word to say. Propitiation means to render favorable. It's the easiest explanation. It, con- it connotes the, uh, the act of turning aside the wrath of the offended God by means of an appropriate sacrifice. Um, John in 1 John explains the significance of Jesus' death, stating that he is the propitiation for our sin. Um, Christ's death appeased God's righteous anger, allowing him to be favorably disposed to us uh, as sinners. Um, Another word is expiation. It's not actually a word found in Scripture, but while the focus of propitiation is is Godward, Christ's sacrifice pays the penalty of sin so as to appease God's wrath, but expiation is is kind of more human-centered. It's more human word. Is that a word? Um, Where Christ's sacrifice removes the stain of sin and the sinner's liability to suffer sin's judgment and punishment. Another word that we find in scripture is the word reconciliation. Um, Those formerly estranged and and alienated are brought back into a state of peace and harmony um, Romans 5.10, before being reconciled to God by the death of his son, we were God's enemies, it tells us. But Paul continues on, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Um, we also see cosmic victory. Now, you don't see that word, actually, in Scripture. But the idea is there. We find it especially through um, 2 Timothy 1.10. Paul perceived that Christ in his life and death achieved a mighty victory over evil spiritual powers. Um, through his public ministry and passion, Jesus, according to First or Second Timothy one ten, Jesus destroyed death. That is a cosmic victory, if there ever was one. And while we don't say that the atonement was just a moral example, but it does provide a moral example and influence. Jesus was a powerful example of Christian conduct. 
Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, Paul tells the Ephesian Christians to imitate Christ's love by living a compassionate life. So the atonement has all these things. It has the ransom, redemption, propitiation, expiation, reconciliation, cosmic victory, moral influence and example. I mean, the, the broadness of this. And, and please go back into Damaris's book and, and delve into some of this stuff. It is rich, beautiful stuff to get into. But then we also see, as we continue on, that Christ is our prophet, priest, and king. And this is all an aspect of the atonement. In short, Christ saves sinners by uniting in himself all those offices, the offices of prophet, priest, and king. As a prophet, he removes our sinful ignorance by his word. He gives us his word. We, we, we no longer have to live in ignorance of who God is. He's given us his word. As a priest, he purges our offending guilt by his sacrificial blood. And as king, he conquers evil and protects his people by his limitless power. And the wonderful thing is, while Jesus was on earth, he did all that, but he still fulfills those roles. He is still our prophet, priest, and king. He must be. A person is saved only when Christ becomes their prophet, priest, and king. So, is the New Atonement a necessary doctrine? Absolutely. Anselm, who died in 1109, posed the question, For what necessity and for what reason did God, since he is omnipotent, take upon himself the humiliation and weakness of human nature in order to bring about its restoration? In other words, Anselm was asking, did God really have to do it that way? Um, could he have worked out his plan in another way? Yes, um, but, and, and this, is, this is a semantics issue here, but it's an important issue. It would be good to avoid the terms of was Christ's death necessary and the necessity and the absolute necessity of God doing it this way. Why? Because by saying necessity or absolute necessary, these words imply that there's a principle or a power that is higher than God that he is accountable to. And that determines all occurrences. That's not the truth. The God of the Bible is the highest explanation of all things. And he is absolutely 100% self-determined God always acts out of his sovereign freedom rather than in accord with any external cause or influence to himself. There is no external influence to himself. So was it necessary that God did it this way? Having freely made the decision to save, God then acted in accord with his own intrinsic nature and perfections. So yes, in fact, Damarist says this. He says, given his own rules for how sin would be handled in his moral universe, the course of saving action God chose in light of the foreseen human situation was the wisest, most righteous, and most loving course possible. In sending his son to be bruised 
and to bear our evils, God gave his highest and his best. I think that's just beautiful. God didn't want to do it anyway because he was able to demonstrate more through the death of his son than he could in any other way, his love for people. And therefore, we can see that the atonement is just so vast in the, the, the plan of God for sinners. Just to wrap up here, I want to give four practical implications to the doctrine of the cross and of, and of, and of the atonement. Um, and I really encourage you to get this book because I'm just going to give you the headlines. Um, Damaris goes into into them in detail. Practical implications of the doctrine of the atonement. First, you realize that Christ died for you. That's a huge, huge thing. The God of the universe who humbled himself to become man died for you. Secondly, you can recognize that his death is final. It is complete. There is nothing more to add to it. Thirdly, one of the greatest implications of the doctrine of the, of the cross is to allow the cross its transforming work in your own life. To allow the cross its transforming work in your life. And that is such a great thing. So we realize that Christ died for us. We recognize that his death is final. We allow the cross its transforming work. And then to me, probably my favorite part of it is we can embrace Christ as our prophet, priest, and our king. He fulfills all those roles. This is wonderful is the atonement is not the most glorious thing that you can ever comprehend, and you will never comprehend it. So you have all eternity to just celebrate it and to look at it, and no wonder we will bow before the throne saying, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Because it's such a glorious, amazing truth. Um, I, I hope you're just getting a little glimpse like I said, there's, there's like 53 pages in this chapter. And so I'm just, like I said, giving you the cliff notes in, in just 45 minutes here. Um, read it. Study it. This should be a lifelong study um, of, of what God has done on your behalf. Um, let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. What a marvelous What a great, grand thought. I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is the words of the wonderful hymn, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. What you accomplished on the cross is so crucial for not just us, but for everyone And those who have not repented and turned from their sin and trusted in the atonement of your work on the cross, 
Lord, we pray that you would open those blind eyes, that you would, saw, you would break hearts of stone because it would be glorious to see all our friends, our families, our neighbors, our colleagues, everyone we encounter each and every day. We want the loudest chorus possible. And we know you've already numbered that. That day in heaven when we will proclaim, worthy is the lamb who was slain. We thank you for this atonement. We thank you for the fact that it frees us from sin and death. It frees us from having to earn anything. And yet it drives us to our knees and it drives us to obedience. So Lord, we pray that even in our time together today, this morning, as we gather with the rest of your body here at Grace Bible Church, that you would be honored that we would worship our great prophet, priest, and king this morning. And that we would do so with a humble and contrite heart to the honor and glory of his name. And so it's through the blood of our Savior Jesus Christ that we petition you this morning. And we come boldly before the throne of grace. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.